This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. podcast. Um, I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I will allow our guests to introduce themselves however they want. Hi, my name is Sydney Ray Chen, um, pronoun she, her, hers. I'm in Survivor Edu Guide. Okay, I'm getting used to that new title, but I'm a Survivor Edu Guide who empowers Pan-Asian women and non-cis men survivors to reclaim their wholeness and sensuality through both intuitive connection and intuitive healing, as well as, what's the other thing? Oh my God, I'm blanking on my own job title. Um, as well as guidance around consent and boundaries and how that extends beyond sex, because it's a misconception that people think, oh, consent and boundaries only is about sex when that's not true. And it enhances your entire life. Um, I'm also a survivor. I also was impacted and have gone through and then dropped a Title IX and went through that whole system. So I have a lot of opinions there. And I'm also, I consider myself a student of Transformed Justice. Also, since you can't see me, I'm an East Asian woman. And so that's super um, important to my identities in terms of intersectionality with survivorship. And I'm also queer and polyamorous. So that's, oh, and third generation before I forget (laughs) all the things. Oh, well, thank you so much for um, letting us get to know a little bit more about you. Do you mind me asking like kind of how you got into the work that you're doing before we sort of dive into the story piece? So I actually did not think that I would be in this work at all. Like I went to film school. I went to school at Emerson College in Boston. So this was definitely... I didn't think that I would be using my degree to talk about sex education or or to be a sex educator. Uh, So in my final year of school, when was that? 2018. That was like three years ago. Oh my God. That was so long ago. I had been raped twice um, within the same calendar year, once by someone who is my primary abuser And then next by someone, uh, a random person on Tinder who I don't remember and don't care to remember. And then I just like, you know how afterwards, after Survivor and something like that, you're just like in this place of numbness for so long. And so I threw myself into a bunch of projects, especially in my last year or not, well, last year and last semester of school. And so I ended up doing a lot of things related to sex ed, but I didn't know it was a sex ed at the time because I was in a bunch of gender and race classes. And so one of the final classes that I had for my last final, final semester of college, 
Um, I did a project on intimacy coordination, which for people who don't know that, what it is, like the TDLR is that um, it's having actors be in a braver space so that their consent and boundaries and needs are met by someone else who is supervising them and -hmm. works with directors and producers and all those other people. Um, Oh, interesting. And so I did a project on that. I did a whole paper and project with grad students and we were looking into how like intimacy coordination could be implemented in the um, curriculum at Emerson in the four year curriculum, both in the performing arts and visual um, media arts programs. And so that was like my first foray into sex ed. I mean, at the time, I didn't know it was sex ed. It was just right. a passion project that, oh, this is interesting. Like, I'm angry about what happened to me yeah. and sexual violence. So let me just put this anger somewhere else. Um, and then before I was a sex educator, or before my current job, um, I was in marketing. Didn't really like that. But it does help a lot when you're a sex educator. Um, and then I just, last year after being laid off or like, fired from an internship essentially before COVID hit um, I realized that I wanted to do sex ed and then I wanted to also combine sex ed with like holistic healing so like energy work uh, meaning like oracle cards or just like reiki like energy work that's intuitive because I was really drawn to that and that has helped me on my journey Hmm. and so now I'm here and it's been a year that I've been a sex educator and Wow, it's been a wild year. Oh my gosh, I know. Yeah. All right, so are you predominantly doing that work online then? Yes. Yeah. Which I love because I consider myself disabled. So doing everything on Zoom is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It, that has been um, absolutely something we've noticed at We Are Her, just like the uptick in, in like the number of people accessing our services, especially during the pandemic. But I think. Yeah, there's a huge piece to be explored around accessibility there, which is really neat. It, I know that it has its downside, I guess, but it also really, um, yeah, it really increases accessibility for folks. So that's, I'm glad that that's something that um, you found really helpful. Yeah. And I'm doing my first in-person event in, wait, a week? Yeah. Woo! It's like a week, a week away, almost. Yeah. A week away. Oh my God. It's a week away. Oh, sorry. <laughs> We don't need to talk about that. It's going to stress you out. <laughs> no, I just realized it. I'm like, oh, shit. It's actually a week away. It's it's uh, it's it's closer than I thought. Yeah, we're, we're moving that direction. In person is going to be weird for a while, I think. It's going to feel weird, but um, still really exciting. Definitely. Well, thank you for that background information. That's really, um, yeah, I think it provides a lot of context into kind of your expertise and sort of where you're coming from. And um, with that, I'll kind of just turn the floor over to you. And what I usually ask survivors on the podcast is just to start sharing their story in whatever way makes sense to to them. So however, in whatever format makes the most sense to you. Um, yeah, it's it's totally up to you. So go for it. So three years ago, or it will be almost, it will be three years in July. Um, I was raped by my primary abuser. Um, this was something that, this was not something, someone <laughs> that I met through left-leaning and activism online spaces. 
Um, and something to, important to note about this and like my ethnic slash racial positionality is that um, my primary abuser is a dark skin, South Asian, non-binary person, meaning that we don't necessarily like I. Well, if people can see the picture, which they will see a picture on social media, like I am a light skin East Asian woman. And so there's that whole dynamic that was at play throughout the the relationship and the the friends with benefits situationship, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what it is, but it felt like a relationship sometimes. And so they raped me in their fraternity's dorm, dorm house or room or whatever the hell fraternities have these days. And I was heavily under the influence because they were encouraging me to drink the whole night. So I was very, very, I, I could not consent because of the fact that I was incapacitated. And they knew that I was also lightweight, so that that's also something important to know. Um, prior to that, there was obviously emotional abuse through, like, FaceTime and other just, like, means. Because on FaceTime, they would be one way because they, they lived in Chicago at the time, and I lived in Boston. And so, whew. Yeah, they were just really warm on FaceTime, but then when it came to, like, texting and everything, they were kind of, like, cold. And now that I look back, I'm like, oh, there's all these things that make more sense when you look back. And that's a form of, like, playing games and, and sort of manipulation as well. A lot of people think that abuse is really active, but it can be super passive, too, like... Like being warm one minute and then stonewalling the next, it leaves the other person feeling like, what did I, what's going on? What did I do? It like keeps them engaged. You know what I mean? And like keeps them wrapped up in this kind of, um, yeah, this like cyclical hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, which is not something that people generally think of as being manipulation, but it most definitely is. Definitely. Thank you for like giving more context to that point. Um. And then, what else did they do? Oh, they did a lot of shit. But um, <laughs> the biggest things that I remember from, like, three years ago, because it's been so fucking long, um, and I've been healing and trying to find wholeness in myself for that amount of years. It's still ongoing, because it's always ongoing, for me at least. Um, they would also, they had a white queer friend at the time and they would dangle this white queer friend in front of me, like saying that this person was prettier. They're going to go on a date with them. So it was this like polyamorous dynamic, even though, I mean, I don't know if they're polyamorous, but it was this polyamorous dynamic where we both knew that we were like seeing other people and sleeping with other people, but we would also sleep with each other. And it was very fucking weird now that I look back and also just very strange and you know, that underhand manipulation like you were talking about and describing. So in July 14, 2018, that's when they raped me. And then afterwards, I just didn't think about it or like, well, I numbed it out. So that's why I didn't think about it. But um, 
following that, I went to Hong Kong to study abroad in 2018. So from August 2018 to December 2018 of that year, I studied abroad in Hong Kong. And throughout that whole time and after the the rape and the abuse that occurred, well, first I cut them First, I cut this person off because I was like, something's wrong. It doesn't feel right. I'm just going to cut them off. And so I did that. And my excuse was, oh, I'm going to Hong Kong. Therefore, I can't keep in touch with you. And so then in Hong Kong and prior to that, when I was living in Boston for the summer, all I remember is that I would drink and party a lot. Um, Because now that I look back, I'm like, oh, that was a trauma response to everything that was going on. This is why I did X, Y, Z things. This was a trauma response. But at the time, I just thought, oh, it's my senior year. That's why I'm partying. Because everyone does that their senior year, right? And drinks to excess and parties and all those fun things. And then in Hong Kong, the second time rape happened was with someone from Tinder. And it was... Also, just different because I was in a foreign country. Like, okay, didn't really know anyone. And I couldn't necessarily tell my close family friends at the time because what do they tell my parents? And being Asian and then also grown up Chinese Catholic specifically, like I did not want my parents to know that that happened to me because I knew, I knew they would blame me. So that's why I was like, eh. And at the time, I had a partner now he's my ex-partner and he had helped me through that time although even with him now that I look back and I'm in a different part of my life my ex-boyfriend was definitely sexually coercive and also super emotionally abusive now that I look back it's always it's always hindsight 2020 yeah it's like damn you know it can be really hard in the moment to have um well especially when people are being really manipulative no no abusive person wants you to know what's going on. I mean, that's part of how they can continue to keep abusing is like by, you know, making it a confusing situation. And sometimes it's not until you're on the other side and looking back, like you mentioned, where you can actually get some clarity. Um, and that can be sort of a horrifying realization. Yeah, I'm still, to be honest, I'm still processing it because I'm like, oh, shit, this happened. But yeah, so it was like basically layers and layers of like, okay, recovering from two assaults and then also still being in an abusive relationship that wasn't, I mean, there were good times and those times were really good times. And also like at the same time, he did still help me to some extent, even though he was still harmful at the same time. So there's all these layer things going on. Um, And then afterwards, after Hong Kong, I went back home to America, finished out my last semester And was still very numb, still doing all the partying, drinking things, thinking that, oh, this is just all part of my senior year. Um, And then it wasn't until like June 2019. Yeah, it was after I had visited my ex-boyfriend in Mumbai to like meet his parents and everything. So in June 2019, we started to have relationship problems. And that's when I actually said, okay. I'm going to go to the therapy and I'm going to actually like work on myself because I knew that I was also being harmful and toxic to some extent. 
not maybe not necessarily the same type of harm as like what abuse is, but it was definitely like learned behaviors that I had to unlearn. And so I started therapy and I still go to therapy with my current therapist, same therapist from June 2019. And that's when I really started to heal and started to figure out what all these things were happening because I used to live, I remember, in so much brain fog. There was just so much brain fog. Um, Two years, yeah, it would be two years ago. Two years ago that uh, it's just like night and day in terms of like the type of, I guess, the more capacity that I have now versus that. And do you feel like that was just you being in survival mode kind of like that was the, how you're like the mode your brain sort of went into to kind of get through it all or the, cause I think brain fog is a really, yeah, I would like, I'm just interested to hear your thoughts more on that. I think it was both. And like, it was definitely survival mode, but it was also definitely like not knowing what happened to me or like not having words. And then also like, I think for me, it was not knowing whether like, oh, like, is this, is this really what happened? Because I didn't want that to be the thing. Like, I didn't want rape and intimate partner violence to be the thing that happened to me. And then later in October 2019, yeah, it was like October, I thought about filing a Title IX. And then I eventually did it in November after talking with my therapist. She was like, Trent, we were both trying to figure out, okay, why do we want to do this? Or why do I want to do this? What will this bring me? Will this bring me any justice? I don't know. Um, and prior to that, I had outed my main abuser on Facebook through a friend anonymously. Because I was like, this person should not be in community with other people. This person's super harmful. And so I did like a call out post with another friend or via a friend who helped me do it anonymously. Cause I was like, I can't have this on me. Cause I know how it's going to look with the colorism aspect. And that can be misinterpreted, especially on social media, even though it wasn't as bad as it is now. Um, and so then afterwards, I remember my abuser, my primary abuser, they, they WhatsApped me because I had blocked them on everything else. And they WhatsApped me and they were like, hey, it's been a while. I saw the two emails that you sent in 2018 about wanting to like be friends or something again. How are you? And it was like a 3.45 a.m. text. And I was super freaked out. I was like, uh, what's happening? It's not okay. Um, and then I blocked the number because I was like freaked out. And then afterwards, I decided, along with my therapist, to file Title IX. And so I did that right before Thanksgiving 2019. And it's not that I regret it, but also I wish there were more options than just, like, Title IX for higher education. Because even with my Title IX process, like, it was just not, it was not liberating it was very re-traumatizing. Even though they had like non-cis men interviewing me, it didn't feel like they, they were just asking me the same questions that like a cishet man would probably ask me if he's not versed um, in anything. So it's just like the same violence that was just being repeated just by different arms. 
what else do I remember about Title IX? Oh, I dropped it because they wanted an in-person. It's not a court hearing, but it, it's similar to that. But uh, they wanted an in-person hearing during a pandemic. And they wanted me to travel with my own money to Chicago. To meet just with you? No, to meet with both, both me, parties. Both parties. That's scary in and of itself, which feels like a pretty re-traumatizing part of the process. I didn't know that was part of Title IX. Yeah. And also it was still under the rules of the Trump administration at the time, right. which yeah. gives context. Yeah. And so, yeah, they wanted me to do that. And then I just dropped my Title IX. And then someone from like the student dean's office or whatever from Illinois Institute of Technology where my rape occurred, like emailed me about like, oh, you shouldn't drop the case, but for the greater justice, I'm like, who's justice? I don't feel liberated. You just want to have whatever on your record to say that blah, 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 blah. Like it. <sighs> I just wish there were more options besides filing a Title IX because I feel like Title IX is very carceral, even the way that the system is right now it's very very fucking carceral and I do not like that and especially my primary abuser being someone who doesn't necessarily have the same privileges that I had I was already uncomfortable throwing them under the bus in that way because it just felt like oh I'm putting this person on trial this is horrible for the both of us right and any federal program is not going to be inherently supportive or um yeah healing or it's this big bureaucratic monster that's just like not designed to help hold that human experience at all yeah because they also ask if if i wanted a non-formal processy on like the intake form or whatever they had me fill out at the beginning and i'm like why would you put it on there if that's not an option for me because then they later told me in the first meeting that i i had with like someone from student conduct or something. They were like, oh, we can't do that. We have to, um, actually, we have to do a whole Title IX investigation and everything. And I'm like, so then why the fuck did you put this other option? On the form. On the yeah. form, when I already have a list of demands and I was like, I want transformed justice or something that's not what you, you all are giving yeah. me as an like option. Like not punitive account, like not punitive punishment, but like other form of accountability. Yeah. Like I just honestly wanted the person who assaulted me and abused me to get therapy if they consented. Like that's all I really wanted. And for the, ther uh, for the fraternity that was complicit and later denied things when asked about it by other um, Asian Greek like members they they said oh we don't know that happened i'm like how the fuck can you not know that one of your ex-members or one of your alumni had a title nine i think student orgs are notified i was on an e-board we would have been notified yeah the title nine process i have heard very few like really um positive experiences with that but it, when it is your only option it you know, I, I kind of liked the language you used around. I don't regret it, but. 
But also, um, if there were other flavors, I would have tried those and tried something else and at least tried it right before the Title IX process. So like that summer, fall time, I had my primary abuser digitally stalk me where I had to change my number and all these things and get a VPN and all these things to just protect myself. And then for some reason during the Title IX, they were like, well, this is not enough evidence to like, since you're not a student of this university or an alum, we can't give you a no contact order. I'm like, what? So so you, you're going to let this violence keep on occurring and let someone digitally stalk me because I'm not a student of the school? I'm like, that makes no sense. Who makes these rules? Who it's makes this handbook? Tape. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like if some people put their their brains together, there should we should be able to do better than that. Yeah, yeah, that's why I'm just fed up with the Title IX system because it doesn't. I understand that it can be liberating for a very very small amount of people, which I'm like that's probably not like five people probably. <laughs> but also at the same time, I'm like, okay, if you have all these handbook things, shouldn't someone be reviewing them? Shouldn't you like? You you all have money. You have money to like do football games and stuff or like whatever. Or and center the voices of the people who have actually had to utilize the services. I mean that uh, nothing without us about us without us. Like if you're saying this isn't working for the people who actually need this service, then you would think that that would make a difference, but it's really frustrating when it doesn't. Yeah, apparently business terms only apply to these people when it's convenient. Right. Especially to like higher ed administration. So I'm like, yeah. And that's all of like, and then after that whole debatical, that's when I started doing sex ed work because I got so angry because I was pissed because I was like, okay, so I went through this whole process for them just to say, oh, we can't do anything. Sorry. We're going to re-traumatize you. Sorry. And so then I started telling my story on social media because I was moved to do so and then I realized oh all these other people that are part of the Asian diaspora are also resonating maybe this is something that I should talk about more and Mm. now I'm here and I don't know and then I started that like in February 2020 is when I really started telling my story after having a boudoir shoot with um one of my friends or well she's now my friend and having a boudoir shoot with them. And now I'm here because I felt empowered to tell my story after having such a like wonderful session with my now friend. Actually liberating experience. Yeah, it was. And I'm excited because I'm going to go get more boudoir pictures on Friday. So I'm super excited <laughs> for that um, with the same person. Because oh, cool. um, we've been like shooting boudoir like every year. So we shot last year and now this is the first time we're doing it in 2021. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to make this an annual thing for myself. Yeah. An annual treat yourself. <laughs> yes. But yeah, no, that was a liberating experience. And then they helped me realize, oh, the story needs to be told. Like, and then I realized, oh, telling my story is empowering. And holding space for other people when I have the space to hold space for other people. Super, super empowering. Um, And that's how I'm here now. And I'm a sex educator. And I love owning my own business. And I love being able to do the work that I do now. Because it's just so... Whenever I see different folks who come through like workshop spaces or whatever 
feel empowered afterwards and realize, oh, this is what happened to me. I can finally put words to something that happened to me. Um, it just feels really good. And it just brings a smile to my face. Yeah, yeah. And I have heard so many survivors who, I mean, obviously we are her, Stevie, myself, so many survivors that it kind of comes full circle at a certain point where, you know, like doing something with the experience to help others is in and of itself, like really cathartic and healing in a way. And it's, um, yeah, it's definitely a trend that I've noticed amongst survivors for sure. Yeah. I know so many survivors who've either started nonprofits or like Mm -hmm. become sex educators or anywhere else along the spectrum. And I'm like, yes, we need more people. Yeah. I love that. And do you mind me asking too, I know you had mentioned that you were specifically sharing amongst like Asian women group groups about your experience with intersectionality of being an, an East Asian woman and um, experiencing assault and abuse. And are there like affinity spaces that you've sort of carved out in the BIPOC community to talk specifically about those kind of overlaps and what does that, yeah, what that looks like at all or? Yeah, there's definitely for for me personally, I'm more comfortable in like women and non-binary people of color spaces. Um, so I'm generally more in those spaces. But within that niche, I've been able to not only like make connections throughout the Asian diaspora, because especially as an East Asian and Chinese person, I do recognize that I have a lot of privilege um, and also love sharing space with other Asian people um, and Asian gender expansive folks, especially. And so I've been able to carve out spaces with like South Asian folks and like related on that level, even though it's totally, there's like things that are similar culturally, but also different culturally. And then also Southeast Asian folks. So like in a week, yeah, in a week, I'm also doing a workshop with my other set of friends, with my friends, Tawn and Jado, we're doing a whole little mini retreat for um, BIPOC women and gender expansive folks. So that's going to be really, really awesome next Sunday. Um, But yeah, I found a way to, I guess, I guess just through IG, there's just so many people on IG and especially like prior to all their new terms of services, it was just really easy to connect with um, people that are like-minded or had similar stories and just really needed to hear those stories. And so through IG, I've honestly been able to connect with a lot of different people, especially in 2020. Like that's how I connected to a bunch of people that I'm friends with now. Just generally being in those BIPOC entrepreneur spaces is also how I've found a way to carve space and find people who are friends, but also clients and yeah, all that jazz. Yeah. Instagram is a really cool tool. And I think, um, I definitely like curate my feed to try and stay connected to and like consume perspectives that are a important to me that I value and that are different from mine. But also I think, um, yeah, in Instagram in particular, but a lot of social media has allowed traditionally marginalized folks of various identities to really leverage their like their voice and to take up space where like before there are like when it was just physical spaces, it was easier to like box people out. And now there are these really cool tools that can like help 
like you were saying, like carve out the spaces in a digital world where it's like, we physically can't, <laughs> although with Instagram, they do have like algorithm issues and stuff too. Like you were mentioning, didn't you, weren't you saying that like there was your, some of your stuff is getting kind of like censored out. Oh yeah. It's been getting shadow banned a lot lately. Yeah. And I'm someone with a significant amount of privilege within not only my community, but also widely in the BIPOC community and so like if I'm getting shadow banned I can't even imagine who else is like there's definitely people that don't necessarily have the same privileges as I do getting even more shadow banned um yeah especially with the new terms of services and Facebook taking over Instagram Instagram has definitely become less fun and now I'm just moving everything to Patreon and everything to my website because at least it can live there and people can be able to access it from there yeah, that's really interesting. I'm not like super tech savvy, um, which is ironic because I do a lot of stuff with We Are Her on, on like on the internet. Um, but yeah, Stevie is kind of the the mastermind behind all of that. Um, and I know it takes strategy, which is is just like outside of my schema of understanding. But I'm, it's really cool that you've been able to like create some of those spaces with folks, regardless. You know. Yeah. And also I noticed that a lot of people, especially BIPOC people that I knew are know are moving offline off of Instagram now. And I'm like, oh, yep. Instagram's dying, at least in my opinion. <laughs> Do you have any guesses on what like the next big <laughs> platform will be? I don't know. There's just like so much also censorship generally, especially against sex workers first and foremost. And then in addition, sex educators and other sexuality professionals on the internet and just broadly. So I'm not sure what the next big thing is. I feel like a lot of people are getting on YouTube. Oh, okay. Yeah. Less censorship. Well, if you want to make a quick plug for your uh, website, now would be a really good time so that I can like write it down and make sure that I follow you. Yes. My website is S-Y-D-N-E-Y-R-A-E-C-H-I-N.com. Um, I'm going to be opening up one-on-one coaching later this month and launching that. Um, I also have a Patreon, which is, you can literally just search Sydney Ray Chen into Patreon. Uh, and that's where all my content will be hosted because I'm just not dealing with this Instagram bullshit anymore. I'm just over it at this point. And I'm like, you know what? People need to pay to see this info because it's really great info. And also like... Yeah. So it starts at $5 a month and um, I just add it for this month. So when people get on the $15 or more tier, there's going to be Oracle readings and things associated with that. Very cool. Oh, I love that so much. Um, Yeah. Thanks for for plugging your stuff. I'll definitely check it out. Um, I, yeah, I kind of want to just like circle back a little bit and, and sort of talk about like what, the next sort of like phase of your journey has looked like after you dropped the, um, the title nine, like what has kind of that from then on sort of look like for you? For me. Um, so when, yeah, I think the week or two or no, the week before lockdown. And then also the week before my title nine, like officially dropped. Um, and I was able to drop it. Um, we have, in Philly, there's this uh, trauma, healing informed trauma working group um, called Hattie Wig for short. 
And so I got involved with them through like Instagram DMs because Instagram was so cool back then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Back when it didn't suck. Back when it didn't (laughs) suck, I got in touch with them. And that's when I really started learning about transform justice. And so I'm really figuring out more ways to commit myself to that and like learn more about uh, transform justice work. I've been in, or I took a workshop with Mia Mingus on pod. Wait, was it pod mapping? It might've been pod mapping. I think it was pod mapping or something. And that was really, really cool. She's an awesome disability justice um, activist and advocate. Uh, what else did I do? Yeah, I just really dove into transform justice because that I wanted to learn more. And I also wanted to learn, oh, maybe there are ways that this could also apply to like Title IX. And so then I started talking about how this could apply to Title IX without knowing that it was like kind of knowing that it was transform justice at the time, but also like figuring out, oh, this is actually ways that people could have been accountable during this process. And just how organizations in general could be accountable to people that they've harmed. Um, and so I really dove in to that. And I still consider myself a student because I, I don't think I'm ever going to stop learning. I'm always going to start learning something new about myself or about the world, about transformed justice and restorative justice. Um, so, yeah. And then I also, I'm trying to think what else Oh, yeah, I also was in a coaching program at the time to figure out, okay, how do I make this sex ed business thing happen? How do I make it a reality? And so then I started holding space because it was just when lockdown started happening. And so I knew that I myself as a survivor was super fucking stressed. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what? Other people may need to hold space too or have space held for them. Yeah. And so I started holding space and realizing, oh, I really like this. And then in May of last year, during my birthday month last year, I did a workshop on consent and boundaries beyond sex. And I found that space in power. And there were like five, six people who came. And it was really great. And it and it just led me to where I am now. Literally, that workshop, that one one workshop led me to where I am now. And I'm like, Holy shit. Like launched you in like a different trajectory. Yeah. Cause I was so stuck or like, I really, really wanted to do marketing, but the universe had other plans to be honest. Well, like you were saying, it's still helpful, especially when you're a predominantly online business, you know, it's still helpful to learn like know all the strategies to get the word out. True, Um, It is. (laughs) Yeah. And to connect with people. Um, and I love small, intimate workshop settings like that. I feel like there's always, it's like less overwhelming and there's a lot more space for like each individual to really connect and like dive in together. Yeah. So that was really, it was, it was an awesome experience and it was like like people that I already knew. So I was like, Oh, this is going to be supportive. People are just going to learn from each other. My friends are just going to learn from each other and they're paying me. Great. Um, And that's also when I decided to create a workbook based off of that workshop because people weren't able to attend. And so I did that, I think, the following month. And then I realized, oh, shit, I actually have a business. 
Oh, okay. So it was sort of more of a natural progression up to a certain point where you're like, okay, this is what I do now. Yeah, this is what I do now. I guess I'm going with it. I don't know what else I'm doing. Yeah, roll with it. Um, Well, yeah, I mean, it all sounds like really amazing work. And um, I'm excited to like, yeah, dive a little deeper into some of your your online resources. Um, I guess I am still a little curious to know more about what like outside of the work that you're doing, what like healing looks like for you kind of, kind of now or continuing to look like. Cause I know you were saying it's like, you know, kind of a lifelong thing. And so I'm just, yeah, curious to know what that looks like for you. For me, it's therapy and also mm-hmm. just like weekly or bi-weekly check-ins with myself. I'm like, Oh, are these boundaries good for me right now? Do I need to step back? Do I need to let myself be taken care of? Cause I feel like, especially as survivors, and a lot of survivors I know, we just, I feel like a lot of us feel the need to like take care of everyone else, especially. And I guess this is something that I'm learning, especially in like the last month or two, to just like let other people take care of me. You don't always have to say yes. Also, a lot of therapy. Therapy is, I love going to therapy <laughs> um, with my therapist because there's always just new things to uncover. Also, something else that's healing our boudoir shoots I'm super excited for that on Friday um and then also just like journaling and manifestation and like talking to my ancestors that's something that I love to do that's super healing and like I truly truly believe that my grandfather like put me on this path because before all the shit that happened to me happened my grandfather had died like three months before I was raped or like four or five months, something like that. And so there was already grief and like, yeah, I don't know. It's just wild. And I'm not sure if funny is the right word, but uh, I guess ironic that grief was the catalyst for all this work that I'm doing. And to just like put me on this path of healing and realizing, oh, shit. Okay. This is the path that I'm meant to be on. Yeah, grief has a way of, like, blowing shit wide open, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, for healing, it's just, I cry a lot, to be honest, at night. Um, it's ongoing. It's like, oh, it's overthinking sometimes. And then it's sometimes, like, it's sometimes letting yourself break down in the bath or something or, or shower and then other times. Let time, the shower blend in with your tears. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's my favorite place to cry because no one can hear me and they just think no. I'm taking a shower. That's right. It's like, why is your face wet? Well, I was in the shower. Duh. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I feel like healing has been an ongoing process and really just letting myself be seen and letting myself be held is, like, the scariest. It still is the scariest thing, even though – now I like have wonderful friends who understand me who won't like emotionally and like verbally abuse me. Um, like I have with friendships past or like um, just a better understanding with my parents than I had a few years back. And as well as like, um, there's just all these things that I'm like, Oh, shit it feels unreal and it feels surreal like oh all this could be taken away from me but I'm Mm. like that is a trauma response (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. And fear. it's still something that I'm unlearning mm-hmm. because I'm like, okay, actually, it's safe to be held and it's safe to be seen. I'm just not used to it. Right. Well, being vulnerable like that is, um, it feels very exposing. I mean, when I think of like vulnerability, I think of like a crab without its shell or something. You know what I mean? It's like very soft and tender and the instinct to protect is very normal, especially if you've been abused um, in inter, you know, personal violence. And so it makes sense, but like unlearning that is part of the healing and can be really, really scary. Um, So yeah, I appreciate your perspective on that. It's not easy. And I actually really like the term like gift of tears, because I do think that it's healthy to cry. And like, for me, I wish I could cry more. There are times where I'm like, I can feel them coming and then they just suck back in my eyes. And I'm like, dang it. If I can only just like cry a little bit, I want to release it, you know, and like move it through. And so I think, yeah, there's a lot of like um, a narrative that you should be embarrassed about crying. I, when people cry, I'll, I all the time, they're like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's like, why do, you know, we don't need to be sorry about feeling our feelings. Um, but it's hard to like change the mentality around it. I love that reframe of like a gift of tears. I'm gonna like use that <laughs> the next gift time. Of, gift of tears. I think yeah. of crying. I'm like, oh, you know what? It's actually a gift to release this. Um, and then also working with different coaches who have like different grief rituals and stuff. So like, I hired a spiritual coach this year, and me and her doing a grief ritual to like release things from my like ex partnership with my ex boyfriend because he's just not someone that I talk to anymore and so I'm looking forward to that but also scared at the same time because I'm like I know that shit's gonna come up but you know what I got this and then also like I hate the dichotomy that's in the media about like oh victims and survivors and I'm like so but what if you also teeter between the lines sometimes or just like both and like it's not one or the other like the fact that it's people think that it's a binary thing is really Feel, I feel like that's so steeped in like colonization and just like white supremacy. I'm like, no, it's not. I also hate the question. Like, how do you know your clients or yourself are fully recovered? I'm like, uh, will I ever be fully recovered? I don't know. I'm a different person than I was before this happened. I don't know. Like, yeah, sure. I heal a lot, but that doesn't mean that I'm fully recovered. And what does fully recovered even fucking mean like mm, I don't know and between between now and recovered there's going to be other traumas because that's life you know and and then you're gonna have to try and heal from that it's just like a continual it's a continual process and um I really like what you're talking about between like the dichotomy of victim and survivor another term people use is thriver and it's like oh these are the benchmarks with which you have to sort of like gauge your own journey. And I think a, that's a bunch of bullshit. And B, I know like for myself, the word victim was actually really helpful because it was like, Oh, wait a minute. I didn't deserve this. This was something that was done to me. Um, so it can be empowering. I don't know. It's just language is so intimate and it's so personal. And I think you're right. I think it's, it's like unfair to try and like make people choose a label. (laughs) And also, like, no one can dictate, like, what's healed or recovered for you. Like, if you're just putting it up to, like, a certain standard, then that, like, everyone's standards or, like, flow and, like, healing journey or or journey with, like, 
survivorship in general and victimhood in general is going to be totally fucking different because we're all different people with different intersectionalities. So, like, there's no one right. Even within the Asian diaspora, there's so many different intersectionalities and, like, different identities that people have that maybe their healing journey is a different thing from yours and that doesn't make it invalid or whatever from someone else's. It doesn't mean that there's, like, this hierarchy of, like, who's the most healed like that. I think that is super harmful as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Like toxic positivity culture on Instagram. Another thing about Instagram, I think too, is like it sometimes, and like, you know, we are her is on Instagram. So I don't, I, I understand the value in, in it as a tool um, sometimes, but I do think, um, yeah, like Instagram therapy where things can be almost too condensed and then people like use that as the frame of reference of how they should or shouldn't be. And it's like, no, it's so much more complex than that, you know, which is why I really like the podcast because I think it allows people to truly like explain themselves and dive a little deeper into the complexities of their own identities and then the ways that these things all interact with each other and what that means about healing and and for somebody else to be able to hear that and kind of give them permission to like ease up on themselves. <laughs> And do their own self-exploration around these issues. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's all this, like, noise on all the social media apps of, like, you should do this. This is a healthy relationship. And then I saw this post on Instagram, ironically enough, that was, like, you can't determine what's a healthy relationship for someone else. And I'm, like, that's so true. That's so fucking true. Um, Because I saw uh, a post on one of my friend's page who's another survivor and work peer um, that I collaborate with and on Haley's page Haley shared that post and I was like oh god this like me and my anxiety just melt because I'm like oh I don't have to be worried <laughs> about yeah. my interpersonal relationships because I'm like oh okay it doesn't have to be this way that the media shows you every right. relationship and connection in your life is different yeah and there are like, yeah, the oversimplification is really harmful. Like these things are so contextual. I actually used to do sex ed and healthy relationship education in high schools as well. And talking to teens about like, someone would be like, oh, well, my partner called me an asshole. Does that mean I'm being abused? And I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, was that person, is that ever okay? No, but it was that just like, did they have a bad day and they were, and they were, they said like, God, stop being an asshole. Or is it like a systematic pattern that is used for like pushing you down and oppressing you or, or, or like, it, I don't know, we can't, you know, we can't take one single incident in that is so specific to someone's like own relationship and experience and just like definitively say it's really up to that person to kind of self-analyze their own relationship and come to their own conclusions about things, which a lot of people don't like that. They're like, I just want you to tell me <laughs> what this is. I'm like, I we let's talk and let's explore and let's poke around. And then you can kind of tell me what you think. Yeah. Also like Instagram, the way that I feel like it's built, it really, again, pushes that whole like this or that, the dichotomy and the whole like bullshit around that. And like, you can't, like you said, you can't really determine what's good for one person because what's good for one person is going to be different. And there's not the thing that I don't like about Instagram or some of these like platforms and even like educators is that like some people give catch all solutions, but you can't give 
catch all solutions because you don't know the circumstances and you don't know the contextual clues. Like there's not a catch all solution to healthy relationships. It's different. That's right. Yeah. I really, yeah, I appreciate the nuance that you can explain there. And I feel like this is actually a really good moment or an opportunity for me to ask too. Um, And I kind of ask this to everybody on the podcast, but if you, if you could say something to a survivor that is listening right now, if you, if there's like a message or a takeaway, or I don't like the word advice, but if there's like something that you wish you could say to a survivor who might be listening, what would that be? I think that's something that I wish that I had heard earlier in my like healing journey that it's okay to take your time. Healing doesn't need to be urgent because we live in like capitalism. So obviously there's this whole urgency to the culture that we live in. And I think just like healing doesn't need to be like an Instagram, like it doesn't need to be Instagrammable also. And it's not Instagrammable. Like the healing shit that I don't post on Instagram that I'm doing like in my own time, that's not Instagrammable. And that's okay. Because self-care doesn't have to, and self-care and healing doesn't have to be like pretty and tied in a bow. Like I really hate that idea. I really fucking hate it. Um, so yeah, it's okay to take your time. It literally took me a year and a half to file a Title IX. And it also literally took me like five months or no, not even five months, a year to realize that I had been raped after I was raped. And that's okay. And it was okay to take that amount of time. And it took me how many years? Oh, it's been like two years since my ex-partnership to realize, oh, my ex-boyfriend was abusive or emotionally abusive and sexually coercive. And that's okay too. Yeah, like being patient with yourself, not just in like the healing journey, but also the realizations because it's going to stuff gets uncovered and bubbles up continuously over the years. Um, it might be another 10 years from now where that hindsight kicks in and it's like, well, shit, that's something that's just occurring to me now about that dynamic. And and thus the perpetual cycle of healing continues revisiting and kind of like addressing things. Um in a non-linear fashion. Yeah. Like the things will be uncovered when it needs to be uncovered, like in its own divine timing, as cheesy as that sounds, but it will be like when you're ready for it and you're ready to handle it, it will appear. And that's okay. I love that. Yeah. There's a lot of like, I should be doing X, Y, or Z. Yeah. I, that's something that I'm trying to like take out of my vocabulary for myself. I'm like, I should, I'm like, no, what I'm doing now is fine. This is where you're supposed to be. And just reminding myself to be in the present because that's also so hard, especially as a survivor. Like, oh, you want to think about the future. But no, enjoy the present. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, we're kind of like coming near the end of our time. So first, I just want to say thank you again so, 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 so much for being on the podcast and, you know, bringing your incredibly important perspective to the table. And, um, we're just very honored that you are, that you are willing to share your story and use your voice. And, um, with that, I just want to give you kind of the final word. And if there's anything left that you feel like you want to say, Oh, well, since I'm not going to be really on Instagram, follow me on Patreon and (laughs) invest in Patreon because yeah, because no, 
something that, oh, something that I wanted to say about the sexuality industry and also especially survivorship communities um, that I've noticed throughout my time in this space is that it's really white and a lot of white cishet women try to lead spaces and I'm like, you need to pass the mic. <laughs> um, so to any white cishet people listening, especially women, like it's time to pass the mic and it's also like time to like make space and also make recommendations for other people because I assure you, it doesn't matter to me, at least as a sex educator, it doesn't matter if someone's certified. It matters about the impact that they have because certifications are steeped in academia and academia is steeped in white supremacy. Um, and also to higher ed, if you're listening, any of y'all out there, hire people who've actually been through the systems, not just because they have fancy degrees and certifications. Although they do have fancy degrees, great. As long as they're the right fit for you, like you don't need a certification to know how your system's fucked. A lot of student activists have been doing this unpaid and they know that it's fucked. So you could just pay people who've been through the systems to be your consultants. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted to say about the sexuality and like survivorship space. <laughs> And a very important message and like preach and also thank you for like speaking up on that. It's really, really important. Um, and yeah, like I said, I very much want you to be plugged on the episode and I will definitely personally check you out and I hope other people do too. Um, and I'm excited to learn more from you. Thank you. Thank you for having yeah. me here. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, and with that, we'll just kind of stop the recording. I hope you have a really great rest of your day. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.